The Chris Sheeran Show, only on YesNetwork.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Chris Sheeran Show here on YesNetwork.com and on iTunes Podcast. You could subscribe to it for free. It's uh, Chris Sheeran, obviously. Lou DiPietro. Why did I stutter when I say your name? And I can't even say name. What is wrong with me today? Speaking the English language. And there's a third person in our quote-unquote booth. The three-man booth. Which uh, looks like an episode of Hoarders. Uh, And that is Jack Curry. Jack, thanks for joining us, buddy. Nine letters in my name, Chris. You better not stutter when you say (laughs) my name. You have trouble with my name. We're all all in trouble. You know, I got to bring it up. The the best shot ever, because I do a lot of Nets games here, and when Jarrett Jack was out in Golden State when Mark Jackson was the coach, one of the best shots, and somebody tweeted it. I think it was when the Warriors were playing the Nets. Jarrett Jack and Steph Curry were walking together down the floor, and someone took a shot of their back, and it said Jack Curry. And someone included you in that tweet, and I was like, damn, that's cool. I think Jared Boschnack, our Did esteemed he really? producer of the pregame and the postgame <laughs> and Yankees Hot Stove, He's the one who first alerted me to that, and of course, I, I jumped all over that picture. You're yeah. absolutely right. Jack and Curry on the back of two NBA uniforms? great. I'm in heaven. Uh, well, we're not talking NBA with Jack, obviously. We're, we're talking about uh, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame and the two un- inductees and some other things to go along with this induction, because there's a, there's a lot of tangents, a lot of arrows and ways you can go with this, but we'll start with the two guys that got in there, Jack, and, and I think both guys... Uh, in my estimation, are deserving. And it's something that's scary to me is that this, it's not the first time that I grew up watching Hall of Famers, obviously, but year after year, these are guys that I watched my entire life. And now they're going into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, usually you're talking to your dad about these guys. You didn't see him play, but I saw these guys. I saw Ken Griffey Jr., the kid, you know, with that swing. You talk about swings in baseball. He had one of the prettiest swings in all of baseball, Jack. He, he had a tremendous swing. He, he was a five-tool player. He was a guy that you loved to watch. The talent just oozed out of his body. I saw an interview that he did on MLB Network yesterday where he said that his father once taught him a lesson, which was get your work done, but don't worry about doing it in front of everybody else. Sometimes it's better to just be off to the side. So he said he built a cage at his home, and sometimes he'd hit at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. He said when you hit around other people – Sometimes you're trying to impress them. You're trying to do too much. So imagine Ken Griffey Jr. at whatever accomplished age he was at this point, hitting at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, that helps you become the player that you were. And I loved watching him. I'm like you. I, I remember his entire career, interviewed him a bunch of times, and I'm thrilled to see him get the percentage that he got. I wish it was another 7 tenth of a percent. <laughs> I'm sure we were going to get into this, but what I think it, it's... four votes? I think it's ludicrous that three guys didn't three guys, vote for him. Three votes. And I don't know what the potential explanation would be, but if anybody could have been unanimous, Griffey certainly could have been that player. It's kind of asinine, to tell you the truth. I, I completely agree with you. And the other thing, you know, just a little funny aside here, is that usually the junior is looking to fill the, you know, fill the gigantic shoes that the father filled. Now, senior is probably sitting there saying, wait a minute, now I got to go back and play again. You know, but it's just, he grew up, I grew up watching Ken Griffey Sr. Uh, with the Yankees, and then the kid comes along, and he was just unbelievable, Jack. I mean, I, the guy deserved the votes that he got. He, he deserved the three extra votes, as you said. And a guy like Piazza, just to bring him up really quick before we get into some other stuff with the Hall of Fame voting, 
the one thing that stands out besides getting traded over from the Dodgers to the Mets. Marlins. Marlins first. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but coming up from the Marlins, you remember that as a Yankee fan, you were still happy because it made the New York baseball landscape better by having him up here. And again, you know, everybody knows this, but the home run he hit after September 11th just sticks in your head. Signature moment of his career. I was at that game. I, I remember that place just going ballistic, and it was probably of all the games I've ever covered and all the homers I've ever seen, if there was ever one that was perfect and that an entire crowd, an entire city, an entire nation, you don't want to overstate it, but that home run really resonated. And going back to what you said about when he went Dodgers, Marlins to Mets, I remember being at Chase Stadium for his first game, and you saw the immediate impact before this guy even had an at-bat. The people flooding off the seven train to come and want to see, okay, who is this guy? Who is this potential franchise player? And where is he going to lead that team? And we saw where he led them. He helped get them to a World Series. They didn't win it, but they were an undermanned team against the Yankees. And they actually gave the Yankees a tough series. And to Piazza's point, I've voted for him every year, all four years on my ballot. I think, again, it's ridiculous that it took him four years because of the suspicion that swirled around him, which I think for him is unfair, but I'm sure he's just relieved that he got there. He, he admitted even this morning on MLB Network Radio that the love affair wasn't instant with Mets fans either, but then he became, he's undoubtedly, if you built a Mount Rushmore of, of Mets, he's definitely in consideration, if not on there. I mean, it's just for that moment and, and what he brought to the team in the in the early 2000s alone. I think you're right, Lou, on both counts. First of all, he's definitely on that Mount Rushmore if, if I were building it. I don't know if Met fans would agree with me. But the first part of what you said, I remember writing a lot when I was still at the New York Times at the point about some of the distance between Piazza and the fans and, and the booing that he had to deal with. And he wasn't thrilled with the idea of being in New York. He sort of wanted to dip his toe in the water and, and see what this was going to become. And I won't say it became a love affair, but I, I do think that he grew to love the city. The fans grew to love him. But you're right. There were some speed bumps in the beginning. So Griffey and Piazza are in. And Ken Griffey Jr. is one of those guys that's never been linked to anything remotely controversial. Mike Piazza, on the other hand, there is that. And there's a lot of guys in there. And a lot of people have speculated already in the last 24 hours and a little bit before that maybe this vote for Piazza finally getting in maybe helps the case of some of these other guys who have the specter of PEDs or other things in them. And you and I were talking before the show, and it was a little interesting point that I researched that I was going to talk to with, uh, talk about with Chris as well. A lot of people, because the electorate base went down by, I think, 119 or 109 votes this year, that a lot of people are making headway of some people getting a bump up in terms of voting percentage. And it's not necessarily votes, it's percentage. Uh, it's 75%, not X votes to get in the Hall of Fame. It just happens to be X votes because that's 75%. You know, Bagwell among them getting a big, he went up 16%, but he only gained nine votes. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens gained 77 and 7.5% of the vote, respectively, and have a negative net vote total. I know you've never voted for Clemens, Bonds. Your, your belief is you don't, you're not going to vote for those guys for the Hall of Fame. But where, 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 where do you stand possibly on like that thought that maybe, okay, now if Piazza's in, you know, maybe some people elsewhere will see the light? I think some people ran a little too fast with that scenario, ran with that narrative and the belief that, well, Piazza got in and, and he had some B PED issues surrounding him, so this should help these other guys. 
what you just said proves the reason why that could be totally false. First of all, let's talk about Piazza for a second. Who's his Greg Anderson? Who's his Brian McNamee? I haven't heard or seen that person yet. So for all the folks who want to talk about, well, he was a 60-second round pick, and then he turned into this greatest hitting catcher, and he had back knee. Really? So now we're going to that extent. With Bonds, read Game of Shadows. With, with Clemens, read some of the court documents in the back and forth between Brian McNamee. And I'm not trying to paint Brian McNamee out to be a saint, but Brian McNamee said Andy Pettit used HDH, and Andy Pettit said, yeah, he was right. I did, eventually. So anyway separating Piazza from those two guys. I think what you brought up, Lou, is 100% accurate. The first person I saw write about this was Ken Rosenthal. Yes, they went up in percentage, but they didn't add voters. So in the trimming of the electorate, which was mostly older veteran writers who don't cover the sport on a daily basis anymore, where are those new votes coming from? They both have six years to make up a lot of ground. I mean, to go from 44.3 or 45.2 to 75, that's not easy. Could it happen? Yes, it could happen. But I wonder, as you just hinted at, where are those votes coming from? Clemens and Bonds in 2016, making America great again. Uh, that, that's the, uh, sorry, I, I know you hate when I go to politics, but <laughs> I had to say it. Um, I, I just want to go through uh, my ballot that I, I did during the week, Jack. Uh, just so you could see what my thoughts were. Uh, and also, if you have back hair and you get it waxed, you do get back knee. That I do. So, you um, can ask my wife about that. <laughs> so just because you have... Can we go back to politics? <laughs> just because you have back knee doesn't mean you're taking steroids. Anyway, um, my ballot, I voted for Junior, uh, Piazza, Bagwell, Reigns, uh, Trevor Hoffman... Edgar Martinez, Messina, Trammell. And it was tough, Jack. I mean, after Trammell, um, I looked at the rest of the ballot, and of course you have – I left Schilling off, I left Clemens off, I left Bonds off. Lee Smith was good, but Lee Smith wasn't Trevor Hoffman, and his ERA was close to three and a half. So I don't know how you could put Lee Smith in the Hall of Fame as a closer when Hoffman didn't get in this time either. So – Lee Smith, don't get me wrong. Growing up watching him, he was an electric relief pitcher. I just don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I put McGriff on because I remember watching him growing up, and the guy did put together consecutive great seasons. And I remember when he came to the plate, he was feared. He was feared by starters, relievers, whoever. That's why he's on there too because I do think he was that elite of a player in my eyes. Again, as you said, Jack, you have your, your vote. I don't have a vote, obviously. I'm just doing this for fun, but it's my opinion. So those are the nine guys. I couldn't get to ten because after McGriff on this list, I just you have McGuire, you have Sheffield who mm, maybe, but you know, I look at a guy, I want to zero in on Tim Raines. And I looked, and Lou Brock is in the Hall of Fame as a left fielder, 293, 344 on base, 410 slugging. 149 home runs, 900 RBI, 938 stolen bases. Tim Raines, 294, 385, 425, 808 steals. If he got into the Hall of Fame, that would be third behind Ricky and Brock and far and away from the next person in steals in that category. He walked 1,330 times. He had six straight 70-plus steal games, five after that of 33 or more. 170 homers and 980 RBI. It's not quite the same as my argument that I always bring up, that I always get yelled at by him and my 
predecessing hosts as Don Mattingly and Kirby Puckett. They tell me to shut up with Mattingly already. But, you know, if I'm going to take one more guy on this list that I sh- think should have gotten in, I think it's Rock. And I, and I vote for him, and I agree with you. Uh, Reigns, right shy of 70% in this last ballot. So I think he should be hopeful that he will get in. He's at 69.8. I'm confident, I'd have to double-check this, but I'm pretty sure no one who's ever gotten 70 didn't then get over 75 in their next. He's got one year, though, Chris mm-hmm. and Lou. That's what makes it interesting is mm-hmm. he really does need to get it next year or it disappears. Yeah. And everything that you just said, I've said, I put this on Twitter last night. Someone said to me, Reigns never had a 200-hit season. I said, all right, well, now we're, now we're looking for reasons to keep a guy out because I think he's had six 175-hit seasons. Did Mike Piazza? No, no, of course not. And hold on one second before you go on. You're talking about a guy, remember what I just brought up, six straight 70-plus steal seasons, and then five after, you're talking about 11 years, this guy had 33 or more steals, and six of those years was 70 or more. Come on, I mean, that's ridiculous. And how about the number that jumps out for me, and I was trying to hammer this home with one person on Twitter last night, a lifetime 385 on base percentage. He is. He was Moneyball before there was Moneyball. This guy got on base. That is what you want your leadoff hitter to do. I, I think Reigns will get in. Um, I, I think that both you and I will be sitting here next year saying, good for him, congratulations. I, I liked your other picks. You and I think pretty similarly. The one I didn't vote for this year that I struggled with was Trevor Hoffman. And though I'm not a big fan of the strategic ballot... I'm pretty sure Hoffman is going to get in at some point. I didn't see him as a first ballot guy. Goose Gossage took nine years. Bruce Souter took 13 years. Um, Dennis Eckersley got in on the first ballot, but to me, he's in another he's in another stratosphere. Mariano Rivera, to me, should get in in the first year. I thought Hoffman, I could wait another year and, and, and think that one through. My, my ballot's a lot like Chris's, too. I... I... Griffey, Piazza, Bagwell, Reigns, Hoffman, Clemens, Bonds, Martinez, Moose, Gary Sheffield. That's, that's, that's my, my 10. I, I think Gary Sheffield's a little underrated based on, you know, he's, he's in the 500 home run club. That's, that's the magic number for a lot of people. He's a 292 career hitter with a 907 career OPS, which is pretty close to the magic numbers for a lot of people. He did it at three positions on eight teams, and so it's not like he just came up and was – you know, the elite slugger at his one position and did that. He played third base. He played the infield. Then he moved to the outfield. He played into his 40s. I think he's a little underrated. But, you know, at 11.6%, it might be very hard for him. But with that said, one, one thing you mentioned, and, and I looked back and, and researched your ballots for the last three years, and you are a very consistent voter. As you mentioned, you have voted for the same guys every year minus the guys that got in because you can't vote for them again once they're in. But you mentioned the strategic ballots, and I wonder – I look at this group of Hall of Famers or Hall of Fame candidates for this year. There's 13 or 14 guys that I look at, and if I had to go yes or no, Hall of Fame or not, I would say yes. But you can only vote for 10. So, you know, without that strategic ballot, you know, there may be a witch hunt for the three guys who didn't vote for Griffey. But as you and I went back and forth on Twitter last night – is that maybe really the only valid explanation is that, you know what, Griffey's going to get in without my vote. I think that Alan Trammell, because it's his last year, or Tim Raines coming towards the end, or one of these other guys that needs the help, I'm going to throw my vote that way, knowing, all right, Griffey's going to get in. Piazza's probably going to get in. Player X may or may not get in. So I'm going to throw some lower ballot support for somebody else that I think deserves it. I think it is an explanation. 
I don't want to put the word valid next to it as you just did, but I do think it is an explanation where you could say to someone, this is exactly what my thought process was, because leaving Griffey off for any other reason doesn't make sense to me. But if, as you said, a person had a crowded ballot, I mean, I voted for 10 guys this year, and I leave Bonds and Clemens off. If you were down to that last ninth or 10th place, and say it is Reigns, and you know it's his ninth year, maybe I could grudgingly accept that somebody did that. I would still say, really? You left, you left Griffey Jr. off? Maybe there's another person on your ballot who you should have left off. I guess that is one way you could think about it. Um, Sheffield, Lou, you bring up great points. I've got two words for you, and I know it's, I know it's what keeps him out. The cream. Barry Bonds, what Mitchell about Report. Clear? <laughs> well, I think, it, I think with him it was only the cream. Oh, he only had the cream. Okay. And Sheffield... Well, Bonds and Clemens goes without saying that I struggle with those two guys. But you guys have brought up names that I, I struggle with. Fred McGriff, I look at his numbers every year, and I, I kind of struggle with how do I not vote for this guy. And I come away with saying he was a great offensive player, but he was a one-dimensional player. Mm-hmm. I know that's not fair, but I, I end up squeezing him off the ballot. Sheffield, the most ferocious swing of anyone I've ever covered, and as you said, did it from place to place, sometimes having to move because he created the reason that he had to move. But I think Sheffield got himself in the Mitchell Report, and guys, I know from talking to other writers, sometimes with a logjam on your ballot, you're not only looking for reasons to vote for guys, you're looking for reasons to not vote for guys, and Sheffield's put himself in that place. See, it's an interesting dynamic that you mentioned that, too, because just listening to a lot of different sources this week with the Hall of Fame vote coming up, for one, you know, J.P. Morosi, our Fox colleague, uh, said he would root for Sheffield to get in the Hall of Fame, but he didn't vote for him for that very reason. But, you know, it's not necessarily his pl- – he doesn't feel it's his place to – mess with, did this guy do this, did this guy cheat, did this, that. He's not looking to make a quote-unquote moral stand. He's just looking straight at the numbers. Whereas last night on MLB Network, same thing. They're looking ahead to next year's class, and Manny Ramirez is eligible for the first time. And Bob Costas immediately, two-time cheater. Not once, but twice. Me, personally, I think Barry Bonds is like the greatest hitter I've ever seen. And these guys getting into the Hall of Fame makes me feel old now, because I wasn't a kid anymore when Ken Griffey came up. You know what I mean? But Manny Ramirez was caught not once but twice suspended after everything was implemented. So there's a valid reason, or in many minds, to not vote for Manny Ramirez. I wouldn't vote for Manny Ramirez if I had to vote for that reason. But then there may be others that just look at it and go, Manny hit, you know, he's one of the top 10 home run hitters of all time. He turned a defensive liability into a decent career because he played left field in Boston for so long. There's so many different thought processes is what makes the Hall of Fame voting great, let alone the fact that everybody argues over, why didn't you vote for this guy? Or why didn't this guy vote for this guy? Or how do you do this? It's very difficult. And it's interesting to hear you say that, that based on Manny's situation, and by the way, almost kind of an admission to Ken Rosenthal, where he did an interview with him and said, hey, we all make mistakes and you have to own up to your mistakes. But you, you would vote for Bonds and Clements. And you see, to me, I put all those guys in the, in the same stew. Just because Bonds and Clemens haven't come right out and said it or didn't fail a test, I think there's enough substantive information that if, if as a reporter you're doing your homework and you're following your leads and you're reading up on the matter and you're interviewing people and you watch that error, I, I just can't bring myself to put the check near their names. I want to continue with that because on our hot stove show on Monday, uh, Bob Clappish had the exact opposite uh, feeling of you uh, about these players like the Bonds and the Maguires 
and the Clemens. And, you know, I got to say, I'm in your camp. And exactly, I'm just paraphrasing what you said, but you basically said, you know, you agreed the premise that Clapp brought to the table, but you can't see yourself rewarding guys that you think cheated, and it's your opinion. And I got to tell you, I, I couldn't have said it any better myself. And I, and I, and Clapp, I believe, said, I'm not a chemist. I'm, I'm not. Right, right. right. And, and all that. He said it wasn't his job. He said it perfectly. Yes, he did. Tyler Kepner was on the show and he said, listen, I don't want to. I, I don't want to go on a witch hunt and figure out who cheated, but aren't we aren't we being a little naive? If, we if, are. If we see that there are certain people who maybe were a little more overt in what they did, and then Tyler said something. I I brought up the thing about well, who is Piazza's Anderson or who is Piazza's McNamee, and Tyler said something along the lines of well. That's what I'm talking about. What what level of cheating? I don't want to penalize somebody because somebody else might have cheated too. Well, if you were a worse cheater, shame on you. If you decided you were going to cheat and then you got your hand caught in the cookie jar, shame on you. This is the fallout right now. This is what you're dealing with. There are other people. I'll leave the names out of it, but I've read their tweets and I've read their columns. Um, and they say uh, so-and-so was a great player and a Hall of Fame caliber player before they started allegedly taking. So he should be in the Hall of Fame. My thought to that is, okay, then why did you take the stuff to begin with? If you were a Hall of Fame player before that nonsense, why did you start taking it? Chris, that makes it worse for me, and I'll tell you why. And I'm going to talk about this on our our hot stove show tonight. I'm stealing from my own copy here. Bunch of kids, let's say a handful, a group of kids are, are all online to maybe be the valedictorian in high school. Let's say there's three of them. On their way towards competing for that, it's discovered that one of them cheated. Would anyone ever say, well, he was on a high academic path anyway, and honor that person? Never. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. All right, I have one more for you. I I'll, su- I'll throw the word valid argument in on that because that <laughs> makes perfect sense. You don't. You might not necessarily think of it that way, but when broken down into that analogy, that makes perfect sense for the mindset of people that are in your camp that aren't going to vote that way. Now, somebody did respond to me. Somebody who votes for Bonds and Clemens said to me, well, they might not get honored, but it wouldn't prevent them from going to college. That was that person's response. And I understood that. Okay, but... Yeah, but college isn't the Hall of Fame. College isn't the Hall of Fame, yeah, right? And the honor would be the valid. The, the equivalent would be the Hall of Fame would be the valid. You're talking about getting accepted to USC and then going to Wisconsin Whitewater for crying out loud. So, no, no offense to Wisconsin Whitewater, division, by the way. They're a Division Three power. I know they are. Are you that's, trying to lose? Uh, trying to lose listeners no, here in Wisconsin? They beat me in. Uh, well, not me, but Rowan. yes, Rowan. They beat Rowan in the, the Division Three Final Four back in 1995. But that's neither here nor there. One more for me, Jack, and that is Kevin Euclid tweeted this out today. I saw it, and Lou and I actually talked about this at his cube yesterday. Uh, I brought the point up, and he kind of poo-pooed it. I just want to get your thoughts. You know. I I completely think the baseball writers should be the ones voting for the Hall of Fame. I do. But what are your thoughts into breaking this into maybe categories of voters where the writers still get their say? And then you have – we kind of hashed out maybe Hall of Famers shouldn't get a vote because – not a lot of these Hall of Famers maybe in advanced age, and no offense to them, but they're not watching as much baseball as you guys are. Um, but my thought is, may, and Euclid brought up retired players, managers, maybe they should have a column along with the writers. What are your thoughts on that? I, I'm a, obviously, I'm a 
was a member of the Baseball Writers Association for a long time in the New York chapter. I'm an honorary member now because I'm obviously moved over to TV. I'm always going to defend the BBWAA and say, listen, I think as a whole the organization does a great job. I was ragging before on the three people who didn't vote for Griffey. What is that, less than 1% of the voters? What happens in this situation, you have 440 voters. If you stopped 440 people on the street and and showed them a a picture of 10 different people and wanted their thought on – who looks better in this outfit or whatever the scenario was, you're not – try and get to 75 percent. See what ends up happening. Basically, that's my defense of writers. That being said, if the Baseball Hall of Fame ever decided that they thought there was a better method and we'd love to have uh, somebody like Bob Costas vote for the Hall of Fame, I, I, who am I to say no? No way. Uh, of course somebody like Bob Costas who is a great – student of the game and knows the history of the game, of course he would be a great Hall of Fame voter. I don't get the impression that the Hall of Fame is anywhere near thinking about doing anything like that. I spoke to Jeff Idelson at the winter meetings, and some of it was on background slash off the record. I've known Jeff for a long time. I'll just say this about our conversation. I got the impression he was very comfortable with the way the voting occurs right now, and I didn't see anything or hear anything from him on our conversation that would lead to believe some change would occur. This is not college football and the college football championship. That's not what I'm saying. I just, and I saw that tweet by Euclid. I just wanted, and and this year it came out exactly the way it should have came out. So there's nothing wrong with it. If it isn't broke, don't fix it. My, my thought of this, and this is the last one I have for you, Jack, because I know you have hot stove to attend to. So we don't want to keep you for the whole show. Unless you want to talk, unless you want to talk giants football. (laughs) Then this will be the last one. <laughs> the, the, the ballot limit is 10. Part of the thought process, perhaps, behind the fact that there will never be a unanimous Hall of Famer, besides the point that you made about stop 440 people on the street, is that there are people that can't necessarily vote for everyone they feel is a Hall of Famer. My personal stance on that is similar that, again, I, as I said, when I read off my mock ballot, there's 12, 13, 14 guys on there. I'd say, gun to my head, yes or no, they're Hall of Famers. You can only mark down 10 names, and they change every year as guys get in or become eligible. Is the limit hindering in any way any guy's candidacies? Yes. In, in a word, yes, because you've had nine guys get in in the last three years. Um, so there's going to be a logjam. You said you researched my ballots, which, by the way, I appreciate you doing that. That was nice, nice of you, and you saw some consistency. A few years ago, I voted for Larry Walker, who I don't think gets enough love. I think the whole Colorado thing clouds people's perception, and they don't actually go and do a little research. Somebody, somebody dug up Walker's road numbers, and I'm pretty sure Walker's road numbers are better than Ken Griffey Jr.'s road numbers for his career. But anyway, back to your point. Because I, last year, had four new guys that I wanted to vote for, the four guys who got in the Hall of Fame, Larry Walker got pushed yep. off my ballot. I couldn't vote for him last year. Is that fair? No, it's not fair to him, but I, I needed a spot that I didn't have for him. So there are so many ways to look at this. Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch talked about what you said earlier. Yes or no? We should yep. get the ballot, and it should be yes or no. And that would also, by the way, limit it to you got one year. You got one year to get in. And man, that ballot would be hard if you knew that you had one year to, like, I pushed Hoffman off to the side this year. Right. If I had a vote yes or no, it would have been yes. Well, as you mentioned with Larry Walker, I'll, I'll just read because I have it written down. I'll, I'll read your ballot from last year. You voted for all four guys who were inducted. 
as well as Bagwell, Edgar Martinez, Messina, Piazza, Reigns, and Schilling. Your ballot this year was those same six guys plus Ken Griffey, and then you were able to vote for Larry Walker again as well as Jeff Kent and Alan Trammell. So that that's that's really you know that and and you you've made my point and I've made my point and I think we're at the same point that if you're a Hall of Famer you're a Hall of Famer I know Burt Blylevin took 14 years right, right or you know if Tim Raines gets in next year he'll have taken 10 but what what really made Tim Raines a Hall of Famer next year versus in 2007 or 2008 you know it's it, Michael K was just talking about this on his radio show there's no explanation for that other than what I brought up earlier it's it's a massive group of people some people are voting consistently every year. Some people have voted for Tim Raines since year one. How does he ascend from whatever percentage he got in year one to almost 70% this year? Somewhere along the way, some people did change their mind, or some people did have some spots open up on the ballot. I do think it looks goofy when somebody didn't get in in year one and then they got in in year eight. I heard Piazza say that yesterday. It was rough to sit around and wait because I knew I couldn't hit any more home runs. But it's the process, and, and I do think the process, despite – some criticisms, and I've levied some of them. I do think that this process works. Jim Rice is another name. 14? 13? Thir- 12, 12 to 14, right? I, think, him to I think it was his 14th or really? his 15th year wow. that he got in. Wow. I should know this. I voted for him. <laughs> anyway, uh, we want to thank Jack. We know you're busy today with uh, Hot Stove, the taping downstairs, so we're going to let you get back down there. And we're going to talk Giants football. And Always let, fun, guys. I'm going to scoot. I'm going to run. Are you sure you don't want to br- you know, talk about who the new coach of the Giants is? I'm going to listen. <laughs> I'll see you guys. Right, I had Jack. fun. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Jack. There he goes. Jack Curry on his way downstairs for another episode of Yankees Hot Stove where more of this Hall of Fame discussion will take place. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Um, now Lou and I uh, will wrap up the podcast today, talk a little Giants football, talk a little about the Yankees. The less exciting 30 minutes of the podcast. Yeah. Well, you know what? We're talking about baseball, so let's just talk about mm-hmm. Chapman now. We'll, we'll end with the Giants. We'll make okay. people wait around for the Giants. Sounds good. And my, my first impression of the Chapman thing was, you know, wow, really? With, with everything going on with him? And then that was uh, one out. By the fact that I thought Brian Cashman was a bit of a gangster. I mean, the way he pulled off that deal and the players that he gave up to get that deal done and the options and the tree, the branches of opportunities that, that, that it opens up for the Yankees. Now, the police didn't press charges. They decided not to press charges against them. Uh, we know what the allegations were. MLB um, investigation is still pending. MLB investigation is still pending. And if Rob Manford decides to suspend him for more than 46 games, the Yankees control him yep. for another year. He can't become a free agent at the end of this year. So there's one positive. The other positive in my eyes, and, you know, this happened a while ago, and Lou and I have talked over the Christmas break and, and, and the new year. And you know, one of the things I'm bringing up is if the Yankees aren't in contention – and this guy comes back from his suspension, and there's a team out there that needs a closer because, let's face it, injuries happen. Brian Cashman could spin that into something that the Yankees need for the future. Yep. Who knows what that may be. But everybody's talking about this lights-out bullpen, which it will be because the strikeout ratio for all three of the guys they have were the highest in the major leagues. All could three be the first – yeah, it could be like the first plus 3.0 plus trio in war in bullpen history. 
the best mm-hmm. K per nine trio in history and, and, and so on and so forth in terms of those metrics. You're talking about Holden Betances to just three hitters. That's on him, though, <laughs> if he could, you know, without walking anybody. But three outs, I should say, not three hitters, but three outs. But you're talking about a, a lights out seventh, eighth, ninth inning with Chapman at the back end of that bullpen. But the Yankees have ways to maneuver. Now they have, really, <clears throat> you look at it, they have three bona fide closers on the roster that can go yeah. seven, eight, nine. And the Yankees, with the rotation that they have in place right now, and the question marks surrounding that rotation, you're talking about getting a team into the seventh inning. So you're going to need at least two more solid arms that could bridge the gap well, from the fifth to the Can seventh. you even talk about getting into the sixth inning? Because think about this. No, you're not going to do this. Hit ev- me. You're Hit not going to do this every day, and you're not going to do this every other day or, or as often as you think you can because guys can't pitch every right. day. Right. They're going to burn out. Eddie Gordado is the only one right. that could pitch every, every day. Every day, Eddie. Right. Think about this. You're in a huge situation. Huge. Really big. It's the fifth inning. <clears throat> really big shoe. It's 7-5. And I'm just throwing names and numbers out here for scenario. I'm not saying this is going to happen to anybody. Okay. But it's 7-5. And it's a day where Tanaka, Severino, Sabathia, Pineda, whoever your starter is, just doesn't necessarily have it. But neither does the other starter, and your offense is better. And you go down in the fifth inning, and it's 7-5. And you look up in that sixth inning, and the other team has two lefties stacked back-to-back, and then the rest of their lineup coming up. You look at your starter, Pineda, Severino, Tanaka, CeCe, Nova, somebody I'm forgetting, Evaldi. Severino. Evaldi. Oh, you said Severino, Evaldi. Whoever it is. And you look at him and go, go get me... Go give me everything you've got for the next batter, and you're done. And then you have whoever your third lefty is in the bullpen, because let's face it, there's going to be three, because you're going to need a matchup guy, and there's three because Chapman and, and Miller are both lefties. So whether it's Pazos, Shreve, Lindgren, Tyler Webb, somebody else that comes in and, and does a thing. You have a pretty good choice, yeah. You need to get one out, maybe two from him, depending on the situation. Then you can go to Dellen with two outs in the sixth inning and say, Dellen, get me four outs. You could go, Dellen, get me five outs if the lefty leads off the sixth inning and you bring in your lefty specialist. Because Dellen can do that. He's been doing that for two years. Or there's four innings to go, and you say, you know what, I need four outs from each one of you. They can do it. All of them can do it. All of them have done it. Betances has done it in spades for two years. Miller's done it at times last year and in the past when he was not a closer. Chapman has plenty of four-out saves on his resume. I don't necessarily know if you were as comfortable doing that with a Wilson Batansis Miller trio, but given how Chapman can slot in any of those spots and you can use Batansis earlier and the way it deploys, you're a lot more comfortable up two runs in a slugfest in the sixth inning, knowing you've got those three guys that can get you 10, 11, 12 outs if need be. Just the fact you know, what Lou just said, and having this guy as an asset, a chip, if you will, if, if that's what they want to do, they could do that. Yeah. You know, uh, it, not every day, of course. No, but... no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a trade chip, oh, too. That, too, yeah. You know, you have Miller, who they talked about shopping. Uh, they talked about it ad nauseum on Hot Stove. It hasn't happened yet. They said they want him around, but Brian Cashman did say still not, not out of the realm of possibility. Maybe he's a trade chip. In, in Maybe if, he is. If Chapman's suspension is 50 games or more and he's got another year of team control, maybe the sure thing of three 
you know, two years and change of Miller versus one year and change of Chapman gets a bigger return. Who right. knows? Right. But Brian Cashman, and we talked about this again at your cube, and I'll let you run through all the guys that they gave up for this. Yeah. Rookie Davis, mm-hmm. Eric Gigailo. Tony Renda and Caleb Cotham. Cotham got some uh, major league experience last year. Um, but as far as Gigailo goes, where is he going? You you broke it down. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'm going to shut up and let you talk. But and it's no disrespect to these four guys that were shipped off. But Brian Cashman basically stole Chapman from the Reds, and there's a reason for that. And let me just say this before we go any further, because the elephant in the room will be people criticizing us if we don't. It would be bad optics for us to come out here and champion. Aroldis Chapman, given what you and I have both said about Greg Hardy and others in the past in similar situations. So our job is to look at this from a baseball standpoint. And whatever our personal feelings on the Chapman situation may be, and there's nuances and loopholes and, you know, Hardy's situation with the police and what happened with the league versus what's going on with Chapman, that's all still to be resolved. So it would be bad optics for us to come out here and champion and not mention that there is the dark side to that. However, it is our job to... Look at this from a baseball standpoint. Yes, and Brian Cashman even admitted as such, the price point came down for whatever reason. We know the reason. We know the reason. But for whatever reason, okay? And you never want to say, so into that, you never want to say the Yankees didn't really give up anything of significance because that would be downplaying the four careers that have been changed. No disrespect. That would be downplaying the four careers that have changed because they're now playing for the Cincinnati Reds. Right. Okay. But I think they have a better right. shot making the Reds than they would have in the end. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, Cashman, when he talks about these incremental upgrades that he always talks about, and the, it's the Dustin Ackley trade and the bullpen shuttle and, and this and that, it really is a matter of getting better 1 through 25 versus 1 through 40 or 1 through 250, however many guys are in the organization now with 8 or 9 affiliates plus the overseas guys. Based on the fit... Based on the need, the Yankees gave up, and I'll use the phrase I just said, it's not fair to use, but little of consequence to their immediate and or long-term plan to acquire an asset that better fits that. Eric Jagailo, we'll start with him. Mm-hmm. He was the Yankees' top pick a couple years ago, the year they got Aaron Judge. He was picked three or four picks before. I think it was 26, 27, 29 they had that year. And he was the first one. He was 26. Jagailo is a very advanced hitter. That's where the draft, that's where Damon Oppenheimer and Mark Newman at the time and that group, that's where their draft priorities lied. Lay, lied, whatever. Whatever. Jagailo has hit well and he has produced when he's been on the field. The key to that sentence is when he's been on the field. He's dealt with injuries in all three of his years in the organization. He missed half of last year after hurting his knee sliding into a base in Trenton. And I think he was done after, like, late June, early July. He played 80-some games last year. There's that, first of all. You look ahead. Chase Headley is under contract for three more years. So even if Jagailo tore it up at AAA, where's he going? And by the time that contract is up, how old is he? He's going to be in his late 20s. And you told me, you know, he could play first base too, but who's going to be there? Right, Greg Bird. The Jagailo situation is in an extreme further down the line version of what Greg Bird, where it's like, you know, Greg Bird's ready, but Mark Tish- you're not going to replace Mark no. share with Greg Bird. No. Like, it's just not happening. Chase Headley's had his own defensive issues last year, as we know, but, you know, we'll see what happens in 2016 and beyond. 
But there were questions about whether or not Jagailo could stay at third base defensively as well. So sometimes you got to give stuff up to get stuff up. And if you got to sell him to get this package, not every trade turns out to be Larry Anderson for Jeff Bagwell. <laughs> I mean, you know, or Do- Doyle Alexander for John Smoltz. Sometimes they turn out to be, <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes they turn out to be C.J. Henry and everybody else the Yankees gave up for Bobby Abreu. Yeah. Okay. So there's Jagailo. Rookie Davis is probably the second biggest name of the, of the four. Mm-hmm. Put himself on the map between Tampa and Trenton last year. Very Shane Green, Brian Mitchell-esque rise to prominence, if you will. Earned a slot on the 40-man. Had some control issues. Got it under control. Harnessed it. Kind of put it together. Made a tough decision by the fact that he was Rule 5 eligible because he was drafted out of high school and has been in the organization for five years. What was his role in 2016? He's probably starting in Trenton. Maybe he gets bumped up to AAA. Maybe he's a Brad Halsey type uh, option at some point if the Yankees need an emergency start and he's on the 40-man and it's easy enough to do. Maybe that's it. Who knows? So, yes, again, maybe they sold high on him. Maybe they didn't. Who knows? But the Yankees have Jordan Montgomery, Jordan Foley, six guys they've drafted in the last couple years out of college, starting with Caprellian and on down to that all fit that you know on criteria. down to Jeff Dagano and they have Herman in the system. They have all these guys. So again, who knows? As for Renda and Cotham, Caleb Cotham was one of what seventeen right-handed relievers that the Yankees used at the back end of their bullpen last year. So now they have sixteen. <laughs> let's let's be fair. I mean, no disrespect yeah. to Caleb Cotham or his role on the Yankees last year or or his talents and abilities, but. It's the same reason the Yankees got Dustin Ackley for Ramon Flores and Jose Ramirez. The Yankees had a plethora of right-handed upper-level relievers and a plethora of left-handed hitting, on-base profiling, upper-level outfielders. Mm -hmm. They took one of each and sent them to Seattle for a a piece that they feel is more useful immediately to their major league needs. That's pretty much where Cotham fits in. Same deal. As for Renda, he's a second baseman. Pretty strictly a second baseman, not really a utility guy. Never really played anywhere but second. He came over from the Nationals in the David Carpenter trade right? and was pretty much Trenton's second baseman for the rest of the year. Starlin Castro just came over, too. But again, yeah, again, yes, yeah, Starlin Castro just came over and is there. Rob Refsnyder is now pushed to AAA because he has nowhere to play unless he becomes a utility guy. Where does that leave Renda? Right. He's third on a depth chart where the first two guys are possibly – just as controllable, if not more talented, whatever, however you want to look at it, he may never get a shot here. Right. Expendable. Right. So that becomes an expendable piece. Because, they were the expendables. Because he's been in the Nationals organization for a while. He was Rule 5 eligible. So now you look at a guy like Tony Renda. He's got one or two years before he becomes a minor league free agent. May never get a shot before that. So why not use him to get something more you need and then go out and sign you know, the Yankee sign Pete Cosma to a minor league deal? Cole Figueroa last year, Jonathan Galvez, Nick Noonan, guys like that. Why not go sign a couple of those guys, a couple of lower guys? You know, Dan Fiorito's been in the organization forever, and he plays wherever he's needed. The guy's like a Band-Aid for the infield in the organization (laughs) because that's his job. You know, you've got guys like that. Why not use a guy like Renda who has a little bit of value in that realm as a trade chip? If his biggest value is as a trade chip, why not maximize his value? That's really what it boils down to. It's like me here. Yes, I'm a Band-Aid. You're more like one of those cool, like, Flintstones band-aids. Yeah, right? yeah. There's a little cut. Call Chris. <laughs> but you see, where I'm get, you see where I'm getting at with that, and it's, yeah. it's, no, it's it, something. It, yeah, and you know what? I, I, you're right. And, and I told you this over the holiday, mm-hmm. and I didn't bring it up, and I'm glad you did it. 
about the whole Greg Hardy thing because Lou is 100% right. I can't sit here and scream my head off about what Greg Hardy did and not have the same feeling yeah. uh, towards this deal. And I do. But at the same time, uh, if you're in Brian Cashman's shoes and you're a general manager... He's the one that has to answer to that, not yeah, us. Not it's our us. job to look at it from it's, it's his our, job to look at it from a baseball right. perspective. And too, it's the Yankees' but. job to do their due diligence, uh, to look into the situation. And from what I've read and what I've heard, uh, the Steinbrenner family has a good deal of knowledge with police departments, and uh, they looked into it uh, where it happened. They've done their homework. Yeah, they've done their homework. And I don't think, you know, the Yankees are run like the Steelers, like the Giants. They're not going to bring in a guy that isn't, you know, or couldn't be Yankee-like. And uh, I, I just think this will all be different when, when the stuff it's, you know, comes over. When he comes over here and he's a Yankee, suspension or no suspension. But here's the thing. Ricky Henderson was not the most no. normal human being no. in the world either. No. He thrived here. Yeah. I mean. Gary Sheffield. Jack even mentioned same it. Same thing. Yeah. 20 minutes ago. Absolutely. So, unfortunately, some things happen in some guys' lives, and uh, just like Hardy, um, this thing happened with uh, Chapman, and uh, the Yankees, again, they did their due diligence, and we move on. They we felt t- it was a move to be made. And Lou did. and I talk about it from a baseball point of view, and uh, it's just, it was, a, it was a great move, because it gives yep. them so many options, and you know what? There, it, there's a possibility... That the guy doesn't even pitch in a Yankee uniform. Mm-hmm. That he's traded after he serves a suspension. That might come down. So who knows? He could be suspended for the whole year. You never know. Who knows? So let's move on to the Giants because I, I have so much to talk about. And I, I don't want to leave anything out. The first thing I, I want to bring up is uh, Coach Coughlin. Uh, the press conference, I watched the whole thing. Uh, I saw Coughlin. I saw John Mara. And I saw Jerry Reese. Uh, Coughlin, you you would never think he would have handled it any differently than the man handled it. He was class on his way in, and he was class on his way out. He assumed responsibility. Uh, He didn't give any excuses. He said, I'm the head coach. He brought Eli Manning to tears. People made fun of Eli because that's just the culture we live in. But you know what? It's an emotional time. This is the one coach that Manning has known throughout his entire professional career. And it's the end of basically an era. It's Andy Reid, Donovan McNabb. And I didn't have any issue with the emotion coming out of Eli. I just really didn't. Because this guy, Coughlin, was like a father figure to a lot of guys. I, I don't know if you saw the Instagram posts by Antrell Roll. Justin Tuck. I've seen it. I saw Eli's interview. I, I mean, I these guys. I've seen it. It kind of made. And I was on the Opie and Jimmy show, and I was talking to them about the Giants, uh, which was a surreal moment for me. By the way, getting a call in, I got the hotline number and everything. It was great. Got to thank Opie and Jimmy for having me on the other day. Um, but I was talking about the Giants, and a point that I wanted to bring up, and I completely forgot about. Coughlin was kind of like. A Herb Brooks type. And from the movie Miracle, and Herb Brooks worked on it, so you know it was, everything in that was basically true. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a point in the movie where Craig Patrick, the assistant coach, and 
the doctor of the team were waiting in the 1979 line of gas to get gas. <laughs> and Doc said something, and I'm paraphrasing, but Craig was basically saying, does he have to be that hard on the guys? And Doc said, well, you know, because they hate him. And Doc said, well, maybe, uh, I forget the line exactly, but I think he said something along the lines of, they hate him, but they respect him. And, you know, Patrick was always there to clean up the you mess. Know, they played, the, the Giants played hard for Tom Coughlin. And that no is doubt about exactly it. what, he demanded respect and he got it. He softened up and he admitted he softened up towards the latter years of his coaching career. But there's something about the man with, that the players wanted to run through walls two AFC championship games with the Jaguars, an expansion Including team. one their second year of existence. Yes, with an expansion team. Yeah. Uh, two Super Bowl wins with the Giants. That was the Niner, was that the Niners-Chargers Super Bowl that could have been Panthers-Jags? Yes, that is correct. But the point is, you know, everybody said when, they, when the Giants hired him, oh, free agents aren't going to want to come here. They're not going to play for him. Antro Roll even said it in his post. He said, you know, we, we were different personalities, but I'll always love you because you, you were the one that made me a better man, a better human being. You know, and, and it was his first comments. It's our responsibility. He's like, he kind of controls the room like Patton. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. our responsibility as head coaches to make sure these men – have a life after their professional career is over because it doesn't last long. That's how passionate he was. You know, Steve Summers last night on his show before he threw to the devils. No, you know. <laughs> Something put together one of his special audio pieces. Mm-hmm. He said the Giants are going to hire Arlie Ermey. <laughs> the Cespedes ones were hilarious at the end yeah, of the year. But I just the, the tropical music. As a Giant fan, I just wanted to take the first, you know, part of this discussion with you and just thank from the bottom of my heart Tom Coughlin because he really I know Fossil brought him to the Super Bowl uh, in 2000-2001 against the Ravens they got you know their rear ends handed to him but Coughlin brought back a certain pride respectability now on his way out you know their owner said they don't have that anymore they've lost it but that is in no way the fault of the head coach. And that's where I'm going next. But I just want to give you the floor and see if you wanted to say anything Here's, first. As an Eagles fan, and I'm sure anyone within that organization will tell you the same, regardless of whether they mean it or not, you, you cannot have anything but respect for Tom Coughlin as a football coach and as, 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 a, as a person. There, there's just no two ways about it. You can hate him. It's like, you know, uh, West Mantooth and uh, Ron Burgundy. It's like, damn, I hate you, but I respect you, you know? <laughs> I hate to break it down in terms of it. I love it. Here's here's what I find interesting about this, and you and I have a similar opinion on how Jerry Reese. You leave Dorothy Mantooth out of this. I somehow Jerry Reese isn't even the second most questionable. How is he still the GM in New York? GM because I think we know where the other one resides. It's off the four train somewhere in a southern borough. But here's here's just I wrote down Tom Coughlin's record. And people say, oh, he, won, he was 102 and 93 or whatever, 103 and 92, whatever the permutation was. He wrote down his record versus Andy Reid. Just because, okay. because that's mo- half of my life as an 14 Eagles fan. years in Philly? 14 years. Half of my life as an Eagles fan was the Andy Reid era. Or roughly half. 
Andy Reid went 5-11 and in 99, the year they brought in McNabb. Doug Peterson was the, the quarterback for a few weeks. They drafted McNabb. They brought him along. The next 10 years, 11-5, and 11-5, 12-4, 12-4, 13-3, 6-10, the year McNabb tore his ACL and was gone for the year. Bounced back to 10-6, and 8-8 eight and eight the next year. Again, McNabb got hurt late in the year. 9-6-1, 11-5, 10-6, 8-8, 4-12, 4-12, In that time, they went to five NFC Championship games, one Super Bowl, didn't win any, but, you know, hey, it's a one-game situation. But Reed was on the way out by 2011. In 2012, the bottom fell out, and that was it. See you later. Goodbye. Jeff Larry had enough. Mm-hmm. I often talked with Doug on the S-Men, and we've had this conversation a couple times. And I've mentioned the phrase critical mass, where – as much as we loved Andy Reid and as successful as he was as an Eagles coach, and they went to the playoffs, what, nine times in his – Nine times. Nine times. <laughs> you beat me to it. They went to the playoffs nine times in his 14 years, and they won, like, I think five or six division crowns. Um, only went to the one Super Bowl. Whatever. You know, he was loved. He was hated. He was fat. It all happened. <laughs> but there reached a point somewhere – You screamed at him at, at the middle end. There reached a point somewhere after they lost to Arizona in that – horrible four versus six NFC championship game where, you know, they were still good, but they lost to the Cowboys the next year. Then they won the division and they lost to the Packers and then they just kind of went down and McNabb's getting older and Terrell Owens was here and gone and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And that was it. It was kind of like, you know what? Andy's never going to get you over that hump. Like that's it. We've never gotten over that hump. To me, it's amazing how those two Super Bowls, like you want to talk about people living off past glory. I'm sorry. Tom Coughlin's career has been cruising for the last four years off that Super Bowl. Because this, this is the Giants' record in the Coughlin era. I agree with that. 2004, 6-10. That's the Kurt Warner-Eli Manning year. Right. They were, what, 5-2? and two, five Eli and three? took over at 5-2. and two. Yeah, and they went 1-8 and eight down the stretch. Yeah. Okay. The development is more important necessarily than winning that year. I but get, that resurrected I get that. Kurt Warner's career it sure before he did. went to Arizona. And then he, went beat, to a Super and he Bowl. beat the damn Eagles in that yeah. championship game. So here's what you get in the next five years. 11-5, and five, lost in the wild card game. Donovan McNabb might remember that one. Hello? 8-8, uh, eight and eight, lost in the wild card game. <clears throat> 2007, 10-6, they win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves it. 2008, they're 11-1. Plaxico shoots, shoots himself in the himself. leg. They finish 12-4. and four. They lose, lose in the, the divisional game. Right? They, no? That was, hello? Part two. That was 2008. Oh, that was the Eagles. They lost to the Eagles, and the Eagles... The Panthers lost to the Cardinals. The Cardinals came across the country and stunned the Panthers. Yes. And that set up that disaster of an NFC Championship game. Between the Eagles and the right. Cardinals, yeah. Tom Coughlin had a losing record over the next seven years of his career. 8-8, eight and 10-6, eight, and 9-7 and, and win the Super Bowl. 9-7, 7-9, 6-10, 6-10. Mm-hmm. So we'll take a nine and seven, a seven nine. That's out. We'll take a ten and six, a six and ten. That's out. We'll take the eight and eight because that's even. Nine and seven, six and ten. That's fifteen and seventeen. He was two games under five hundred the last seven years of his career. They won the Super Bowl in two thousand eleven. Great, super, awesome. Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl too. Three years now, they've been trending in the wrong direction. Now nine and seven, winning the Super Bowl versus nine and seven and not making the playoffs. I won't say anything about because the Eagles were ten and six and won the NFC East two years ago. And then last year they were ten and six and didn't make the playoffs. And then this year, six and ten, seven and nine. But but I, I've often said that it felt like the team reached critical mass somewhere around 2012 with Coughlin. Like maybe they'll have enough talent where they'll get hot and they'll win a Super Bowl. But they're pretty much a 500 team that gets 
I don't want to say gets lucky because there's no luck in the NFL. Well, they asked Mara that question, but they're a five. They were basically a 500 team that got hot at random times for the last eight years of Coughlin's tenure, and, and that's what Mara was waiting on the year after two, when they won the Super Bowl the, the second time because someone asked him that question, were you just waiting for the team to click in? Here's the problem. The talent wasn't there. Oh, I see your list of Reese draft picks right there. It's right in front There's of There's seven me. guys. I got... In the NFL. Seven. Okay, I got mad. <laughs> I got mad on Tuesday. He's a special teams guy! We have to drop that in every once in a while. I have it. But... The Christian I, I, Supercoach. I, I just want to go through the linebackers that Jerry Reese has drafted in his tenure as the Giants' GM. In 2007, he took one, Zach Diasi, out of Brown. He's a long, he's a long snapper. snapper. I think John Dorenboss was a fullback. He's a long snapper, too. 2008, he took Jonathan Goff and Brian Keel. Should have taken his brother, Jack. 2009, he took Clint Sintum, I think out of Virginia. Clint Sintum, yeah. He was an outside linebacker DN hybrid. And he was supposed to be the next best thing. I covered the NFL draft that year. That's the only reason I know about it. I don't think he's in the league. Nope. 2010. Covered that draft, too. Philip Dillard, Adrian Tracy. Phil Dill. 2011, Jaquan Williams... Couldn't cover me in the second level. And Greg Jones. I only know one ever other player ever named Jaquan, and he couldn't cover anybody either. He was Temple safety for four years. He's played for about five NFL teams. <laughs> they were both taken in the sixth round. In 2012, he didn't take one linebacker. 2013, didn't take a linebacker. 2014, he took Devon Kennard in the fifth round. 2015, last year. Didn't take a linebacker. So three out of the last four years, a position that has lacked any kind of pop, besides in free agency when he brought in Kavika Mitchell for that first Super Bowl run in 2007, which was a great pickup, but he went and took money in Buffalo the year after that. That position has stunk, absolutely stunk, and Devon Kennard, or Devin Kennard, is the one guy out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine linebackers that he's drafted that is on this team. If you want to say he's on this team. And that's a position that the Giants have often prided themselves on. I'm not even a yes. Giants fan, and I could probably tell you at least three quarters, if not all, of the Giants starting linebackers in that Super Bowl run two decades ago. Look, I'm not saying... The Harry Carson, Pepper Johnson, Carl yeah. Banks, Lawrence yes. Taylor era. Yes. The Crunch Bunch. Yeah. Van like Pelt. Said, I'm not even a fan, and I can still see Pepper and Banks and Lawrence yeah. Taylor killing Brad people. Van Pelt, Gary Reasons... Harry Carson, Lawrence Taylor, Andy Hedden, you know, and then I saw somebody on Twitter talking about maybe bringing in a coach that wants to go to a 3-4. Who? How do you go to a 3-4 defense without linebackers? Are you insane? That's crazy Eddie talking. Well, I can tell you how you do it. You'd be Billy Davis. Did you see the disaster that was the Eagles middle linebackers this year? No, I can't say that I have. But you you cannot switch to a 3-4 and not have linebackers. 
That is the most asinine tweet I've ever seen in my life. <sighs> anyway, I digress. So those were the linebackers he's taken since 2007. And I, I have a point of contention with the fact that John Mara said Jerry Reese has built two Super Bowls. <laughs> two. He's built half of one if he's, he's lucky. He's built half of the second one. Because most of the guys on the field in the second one were Ernie Acorsi. And as you brought up on Facebook, we can't forget about Dave Gettleman, who is now, drum roll please, the general manager of the 15 and 1 Carolina Panthers. Thank you. And did I not say that it's no coincidence that defense looks a lot like the second exactly. Super Bowl run Giants? He was a scout in 98 for the Giants. He, he was the pro personnel director from 99 to 11. Then he was like a senior, senior pro, pro personnel, personnel guy for 2012. 2013, he went to Carolina. 2015, they have a hell of a team over there. Hell of a team. And the Giants have a 32nd ranked defense. Now, I listened to Jerry Reese today before I came up here. I, I watched the whole, I DVR'd it. I, I DVR'd the press conference. I watched Coughlin. I got through. Mara with the questions. I saved Reese for today because I wanted it fresh in my mind and I wanted to write down notes so I could come up here. Because look, five years ago, Mara's right. Giant fans were saying, in Jerry, we trust. I was one of them. I was one of them who, you know, pulled the blinders over my face and said, in Jerry, we trust. That's gone. He's got $50 million in cap space and another draft. <sighs> Here's why this is a very dangerous situation, Giant fans. And I'm sure you've heard this ad nauseum. You know, Lou and I do this on Thursday. I was chomping at the bit since this happened to do this on Monday. They had the press conference Tuesday, but Coughlin stepped down officially Monday. You leave Jerry Reese in his position. Now, if he goes out there and spends this money and brings the Giants back to a playoff team, and I'm not talking about a 9-7 and seven team. With me, that won't fly, even if they make the playoffs and lose in the first round. $50 million in cap space and you win nine games with Eli Manning as your quarterback? And the most dynamic offensive player in football as his number one receiver. Besides Antonio Brown. But... You, you look at the – here, Lou, Lou will back me up on this. Baseball fans everywhere will back me up on this. Baseball defense, where do you have to be – where's your, the strength of your defense? Up the middle. Up the middle. Catcher, middle infield, center fielder. Same thing in football. Same thing applies. Your offensive and defensive lines, your linebacker. Where do the Giants have the most problems? With the exception of Flowers, you know, some guys, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to poo-poo the entire offensive line because they did come together towards the end of the season. They did. But it was another season where injury, Jeff Schwartz, two years, big free agent pickup from Reese from Kansas City, two years he played 13 games. Out of 32 games, he played 13. Oh, you can't help injuries. Everybody has injuries. Well, you're rolling the dice, Jerry, and you're not coming back 
you're crapping out pretty much. You're like Eddie Murphy in Raw. You remember the scene. I'm not bringing up the verbiage that went on with that. But here's something, and Mike Vaccaro, God bless him, the New York Post, he writes, he's one of those writers, he's one of those columnists like Kevin Kernan, that I could write and it feels like I'm speaking. It's a guy I could relate to. And Vaccaro, I want to give him credit for coming out the day after this. And it's because I didn't listen to Reese until today. But the first words out of his mouth, after Coughlin went up there again and said, I'll take the heat, I'll take the responsibility. Jerry Reese said at least five times that he'll take full responsibility in his soliloquy there. But at the top, he said, I'll take full responsibility even though everyone is involved with the players we take. So in the same sentence, in the same breath, he accepts full responsibility, but throws everybody on the staff under the bus. Sort of sounds like it comes from the Lionel Hollins playbook. Ding, 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 ding. Be honest. I want to throw a, a great shout out to someone who used to work here, Kim Jones, who now obviously covers the NFL, the NFL Network, and does a tremendous job. She asked about the linebackers. And improving that area. And Reese danced around the question. How do you dance around a specific question about the lack of depth you have with linebackers? Of course, he brought up the injuries. Beeson, another one. Roll the dice. <clears throat> Crapped out. Not saying you should have kept Chase Blackburn around. But you were rolling the dice on Beeson. Yeah, he might have been a great vocal leader. Doesn't do anything when he's on the damn sidelines. And you have Lou. What kind of players? Special teams guys. You have special teams guys playing linebacker. How often, I don't mean to interrupt you because I know you're, you're rolling here, but how often do we talk about on this show, or how often do we talk about on Hot Stove, or how often does Michael K talk about on his show, how you can measure Brian Cashman's value and how he's doing his job based more on bad times than good and how a team that had Lyle Overbay playing first base and David Adams playing 47 games in the infield and Ben Francisco as the opening day cleanup hitter won 85 games. (laughs) Yeah. Because everybody has injuries, but that doesn't excuse a lack of depth. That's not more than once. Anyway, that's the key word. Okay. That's the key word, and I was getting to that, but I'm glad you said it. And it was based on what Kim asked him about the linebackers. His answer was about improving the whole defense. And then he brought up that the starters were hurt, and Casillas gave him. Casillas played special teams on Tampa Bay. He should not be starting anywhere near the linebackers. At least not on a better team than Tampa Bay. Exactly. Here, listen. Going, go, and, and another question Kim asked, which I got to give her huge props for. When the owner of the Giants was up there, she asked Mara, you guys talked about personnel not being there. Then why is the head coach leaving and the general manager staying? And he said he believed Jerry Reese was the right guy to lead them forward. And before I get to my next point, I want to just follow up what I just said about Kim's question by saying 
This is very dangerous, Giant fans, and you know why. Because if the Giants, if they're going to allow him, he's still there. He's going to pick the new coach. And if he picks the new coach and the team stinks next year after another botched draft where he misses guys and another botched attempt at free agency. Now, look, this is the most money the Giants have in quite some time. So this could be his year to turn everything around. And he could. I'm not saying he can't. He could. But if he doesn't, if the Giants are 6-10, and 7-9, and nine, not in the playoffs again next year with a third-place schedule, if they can't get in the playoffs, now, if you want to fire the GM, guess what? He just brought in the new head coach. And if he brings one in from outside the organization, if it's not McAdoo, it's not Spagnola, you fire the GM next year, you bring in a new GM, he's going to have a coach he doesn't want. And guess who you are? Guess who you've become? One of the most revered franchises, one of the cornerstone franchises in the NFL has become the New York freaking Jets. It's not the way you do business. Now, I could be up here on my soapbox screaming for nothing because Reese will do probably do a great job getting the Giants back to where they need to be. He has enough money, and he could work his way through the draft to better this team. He could. Is he going to fill every hole? No, but he could fill enough holes to get them back in the playoffs and give Eli Manning, their elite quarterback, a freaking chance. They are wasting time with this guy. I'll tell you one team who would love to have Eli Manning on the last week of the season. The New York freaking Jets. Because if Eli Manning is their quarterback that Sunday, they are in Cincinnati this week. Book it. He is not Ryan Fitzpatrick, and it's not a knock on Fitzy because I like him. I respect the hell out of him for what he's done in his NFL career. But he's not Eli Manning. Wasting his career. The last three, four years have been a waste. How do you have that kind of quarterback in this crap team? And speaking about the crap team, the staff was fine. I said this on the Opie and Jimmy show. The staff was fine. There's, you could slide McAdoo over to be the head coach, keep Spagnola as the defensive coordinator, because they made chicken salad out of chicken you-know-what. They squoze everything out of these players that they had. They got every last bit of their talent. Every last bit of Reese's Pieces of mediocrity and a 32nd ranked defense could have had an 11 or 12 win team. Think about that. The 32nd ranked defense in the NFL, that team could have had 11 or 12 wins. Put that up in your crock pot of a dome and let that simmer on low for a while. That'll make your brain nice and tender. Eight games. Eight games. This team with, with personnel. 
that was molded and, and wanted to run through a wall for that coaching staff. And the proof is in these final scores. Cowboys, they lost by one. Falcons by four. Saints by three. Patriots by one. Redskins by six. Jets by three. Panthers by three. Eagles by five. Eight games they lost by an average of just over three points. One possession either way. One possession either way. Six points or less. And we can go through it. The Cowboy game had the lead. Couldn't stop the Cowboys. You know why? Because the defense just didn't have the talent. I've said it over and over again. Unga, great player, you know, father, worked his rear end off, not drafted. He can't be at middle linebacker. On a last drive, we are trying to beat the Cowboys in the opening game of the season. Just can't. It was a bend and not break defense, and it broke always at the wrong time. Steve Spagnola's system works. Ben McAdoo's system works. Get them the groceries. Get them the groceries so they could bring this team back. Maybe we should hire Donald Trump as the Giants head coach. He can make the Giants great again. Lou, it's over to you. It's what everything. Thank you for letting me. You're welcome. Everything you just said is the opposite of how we feel as Eagles fans about Chip Kelly's situation. You can't, and I paraphrase you every time I've said it, you can't go into a kitchen that's already stocked with decent food and cook a five star meal and then say, nope, I need to shop for the groceries because this is my kitchen now, and then produce a poop sandwich. And that's what the Eagles did this year. And that's why Chip Kelly is out of work. And why Pat Shermer is 1-0 as the Eagles interim head coach. <laughs> I said to throw that in there. <laughs> but it's true. Chip Kelly's ego got in the way. He didn't adjust. his play. However you want to look at it, he disrupted the Christmas party. There are all kinds of, I mean, oh, God forbid. I, I, I read that story. At least they had one. Did they want to hold it on a Saturday? They wanted to hold it on a Friday night, Friday as they always night. do, and they did it on a Monday afternoon instead because Chip said it would interfere. And with... then he didn't show up, right? Yeah. And then a couple days later, he was he was out. He was fired eight days later. You're out, Tom. Whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of reasons why Chip Kelly is no longer the head coach of the Eagles, and part of it has to do with his ego that the system was more important than the players. And like you just said, it's not. Because Steve Spagnuolo proved that. Steve Spagnuolo may have been a disaster as a head coach. And there's no guarantee that he'll be a disaster as a head coach if he gets another job. And there's no guarantee he won't. But if Steve Spagnuolo had talent on his defense, the Giants are 8-8, eight 9-7. Eight, how, how does Eagle defense do? 14-2. and two. One possession. Did he have the horses? Who? Spagnola on the giant on the on the Eagles. He did. He was a Jim Johnson disciple. There you go. You might have heard of a guy called Brian Dawkins. Yes, I have. You may have heard of every Eagles cornerback that played in that era, whether it be the uh, Troy Vincent Bobby Taylor combo, whether it's Troy Vincent, who's now an NFL high ranking executive, who everybody hates now, uh, Lito Shepard and Sheldon Brown. 
Brian Dawkins playing safety. Uh, I could say Nate Allen because that's who they got for Donovan McNabb. But, you know, that defense had guys. They had players. You know who we had this year? We had Kiko Alonso, who I tweeted in the middle of a game might be the most useless football player I've ever watched in my entire life. Uh, I have to read this to you really quick because this happened in the Reese Q&A. Uh, from NJ.com, Jordan Rainin. We're going 90 minutes or so today, folks, by the way, because we got a big show. So just bear with us. Uh, Jordan Rainin, New Jersey Advanced Media for NJ.com. Uh, this is him. It started off as a routine exchange between Giants general manager Jerry Reese and me during an awkward, intense postseason press conference. I asked Reese about the Giants' lack of success in the mid to late rounds of the NFL draft, and he answered with a brush off. There's less talent in those rounds. Is that where the, Go ahead. I know where you're going with this. He answered with a brush off. Mid to late rounds, you know you have lesser talent in the mid to late rounds, Reese said. We just missed on some guys, gotten good players out of the mid to late rounds. Just to be frank, Jordan, you have lesser talented players in the mid to late rounds. You know, if you pick in the top 10 or 12, you get some higher quality talent. That sounds like me in my fantasy draft, first of all. <laughs> that was me. Wait a minute. So you're saying that the, better ta- the more talented players get picked higher in the draft? Holy crap. Can you give me the winning Powerball numbers, please, Mr. Reese? Because you are clearly a savant. Given that the Giants general manager is available to the media to talk football about seven of the 365 days a year, I decided to press after owner John Mara said unproductive unproductive draft classes were a primary cause of the Giants' struggles. I assume we could accept that as a given. Your percentage of hitting on those is in lower in the last eight years or so than the other teams, I told Reese. Granted, you're not going to hit 50%, but Reese fired back. Have you researched that? Do you know that for a fact? Okay, until you know that for a fact, then I don't think you should say that. That's just my opinion. If you know that for a fact, then you could tell me that, but give me the facts on that. Challenge accepted. So I went to the record books and studied every draft for every team rounds three for seven since Reese took over as general manager in 2007. I was looking for the, was the number of hits the Giants had in those rounds seven. compared to the rest of the league. And there's seven guys. Hits will be defined as players who are starters or significant contributors for more than one season for the team that drafted them. I went into uh, it with a completely open mind. Maybe I was wrong. Certainly has happened before. Maybe Reese and the Giants had done extensive research on the topic. If so, that would have been time. The time for Reese to say, but he didn't. He attacked. I've been more of a Reese defender than a basher. I view the Giants as blah, 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 blah. Okay. Draft hits from 2007 in rounds – 2007 to 13 in rounds three through seven. Note it usually takes three seasons to be able to accurately assess assess a draft, so 2014-15 was not calculated. Even though there may be guys that – I mean, Jordan Hicks was, I think, a fifth-round pick of the Eagles. He ended up being their best middle linebacker, so that's possible. The Packers – or the top with 14. Shocker. Ted Thompson? No. The Go Dolphins figure. are second with 13. Panthers, Raiders, and Bucks all tied at three with 12. And two of those teams have been abysmally bad from the majority of that stretch. Texans, Colts, Bears, Vikings, Falcons tied at six with 11. Seahawks, Chiefs tied at 11 with 10. Tied at 13. The Rams, Chargers, Titans, Jaguars, Bengals, Steelers, Ravens, Broncos, all with nine. Tied at 21. Cards, Lions, Cowboys, Eagles, Jets, all with eight. The Eagles were a lot higher in the Andy Reid era for the majority of it. Tied at 26. Saints, Browns, seven. Tied at 28th. Second to last in this case. The 49ers, Patriots, Bills, and Giants. With six. Who's 32nd? The Redskins, Redskins with three. Ugh. 
They've been abysmally bad so, for much of that time, too. So good and on they, you, Jordan. And they traded their whole draft for RG3 three years ago. Good on you, Jordan. Look, I'm going to throw three names at you that prove that maybe Jerry Reese just proved that his football IQ is not what a general manager in the National Football League needs. Here's name number one. Name the Philadelphia Eagles offensive player who had a career day with nine catches for 152 yards on Sunday. Oh. The answer is Zach Ertz, who was, I believe, a fourth-round draft pick. I should have known that, but I was watching more of the Jet game. I'm sorry. It's understandable. But I believe he was a fourth-round draft pick, and you can look that up if you want to double confirm, but I think Ertz was a fourth-round pick. I'll look it up for you as you talk. Okay. Contestant number two um, recently had an article written about him, about how he's so successful after winning five Super Bowls that he has a personal chef for him and his supermodel wife. Name that strapping young man. For the Eagles? He's uh, No. He's a, he plays for a team in uh, somewhere near Boston. Gronkowski? Uh, no. Tom Brady. There you go. Ding, 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 ding. For double the points, Mr. Sheeran. Yes. Name the round and selection Tom Brady was chosen in the NFL draft in whatever, 1999. I know the round. I don't know the selection. Sixth round, Sixth 199th round. overall pick. Okay. The Baseball Hall of Fame class of 2016 was announced yesterday. and Round two, 35th overall. Okay, so then I take back what I said about Ertz. But Jordan Hicks was a fifth-round pick this year. Um, and the Eagles have hit a lot earlier in the Andy Reid era uh, on those guys. So now my final question is, the Baseball Hall of Fame was announced. Mm-hmm. Ken Griffey Jr., was elected the first ever number one overall pick elected to the Hall of Fame. Who was the other person elected to the Hall of Fame with Ken Griffey this year? Mike Piazza. What round of the Major League Baseball draft was Mike Piazza selected in 1990, 1988? The 59th. 62nd. <laughs> There's not even a 62nd round anymore. Anymore, yeah. We laugh a lot all the time because, you know, guys, you never know where they're going to hit. Nick Turley, who was a Yankees prospect for a while, was a 50th round draft pick. There's guys littered throughout baseball that are that. Nobody as good or as late as Piazza. But Tom Brady, sixth round pick. Headed to the Hall of Fame, wouldn't you say? Maybe an extreme example, but there's plenty of guys on plenty of teams, and you just said it. Look at all the teams that were at the top of that list. Teams don't necessarily always have five picks in rounds three through seven. They have more. Sometimes they have less. But they probably average out to whatever it is, 40 picks in the Reese era, if you're not counting 14 and 15. And they had how many hits? A lot more than the Giants. Mm -hmm. Because there's talent there. It's just a matter of, A, can you find a fit for your team, of course. But, B, can you find that talent? I mean, look look at Shane Ray. On the 49ers this year. Or not the 49ers. Where, I'm sorry. He's not a 49er. He dropped in the draft. He was a talented defensive end. Linebacker hybrid. He dropped in the draft because he had some issues. Somebody took a chance on him. Navarro Bowman. The same thing. He is a 49er. Or was. The same thing happened to him when they took him. He had some issues. Team took a chance on him. Now, yes, you're going to find some duds. You're going to find some some crappy players. You're going to find some Nob Browns and Freddie Mitchells that don't quite fit in along the lines of the Deshaun Jacksons and the Jeremy Macklins, and that's a list of wide receivers from the Eagles. But the 
talent's there if you find it. The talent's there if you look for it. And maybe that's not on Reese, per se, but that's on those scouts that are paid to do that. The scouts that are paid to look at it might, these late-round players and determine who's the best fit and where they go. It might not be on Reese, but at the same it all comes time, back to if him. it's not on Reese, then it's not on Coughlin. It's on his staff. And, and at it's the end the of the same thing. At the end of your little your little rant there, the one thing I didn't say that I that I was thinking the whole time is if Ben McAdoo or Steve Spagnolo is the head coach of the New York Football Giants in mm-hmm. 2016, tells you all you need to know about Jerry Reese's job security. Right. Because I'm not saying Ben McAdoo does not deserve a chance to be a head coach in the NFL. And I'm well, not the saying the Eagles are looking at him too. Right. And apparently they're close with Adam Gase too. They're hot on his trail. But I'm not saying McAdoo doesn't deserve a shot. And I'm not saying that Spags doesn't deserve another shot because I don't think anybody could have coached the Rams to respectability no. in that in that time period. No. It took Jeff Fisher three three years to get back to close. Point being, though, that if you go for the easy internal hire like that, it makes it easier if you fail again next year to wipe the slate completely clean. For the Giants, not and it's for the same, Reese. Right. That's what I'm saying. For for the Maras and here, the Tishes. And it's the same situation the Jets were in with Idzik and Rex Ryan and Tannenbaum. Everybody's asking me who the Giants should hire as the head coach. You know, and I, I it makes my eye twitch when people mention Nick Saban. The guy couldn't handle Miami. He's gonna handle New York. And he's gonna leave Alabama. Why why would he leave Alabama? Why? There's no reason for him to leave Alabama. None. Nope. Yes, the Giants is an attractive coaching job, but everybody wants to talk about legacy all the time. And if he comes to New York and stinks, that's his legacy. Because mm-hmm. he already stunk in one stop. He in already, the NFL. St- yeah. You know, he's he's got his college legacy, but his overall legacy takes a hit because he would stink in Miami and he would stink in in New York. You don't want to stink in the the biggest market in the, in the country. Here's my thoughts on the Giants' new coach, Eli Manning, had his best year. Touchdown pass-wise, quarterback rating-wise. He's got all the hand signals down. He's got all the audibles down. He knows the ins and outs of McAdoo's system. And you see how much more comfortable he is this year as opposed to last year. Slide McAdoo over. Give him the shot as the head coach. That Because, again, I don't think the staff was the problem. No. Now, look, can you bring... Listen, I don't. I, I agree with you. Tom Coughlin, sixty-nine years old. He was next year was his last year. You're not giving him another five-year deal. You, you're just not. It's not happening. Would you have loved to have Tom Coughlin be sixty-two? Yes, yes. And in that situation, who knows what would have happened? Because in my heart and in my mind, I know it wasn't the coaching staff. I know the coaching staff had those guys ready to play, showing up. There goes my chair again. Every single week. It was the lack of talent. You've said it weeks on weeks on weeks. They just didn't have enough. They just didn't. That's on the front office. Yeah, and I think this staff, without Coughlin, deserves a chance to prove everybody wrong with some talent on the roster. I do. And I think Eli Manning's going to have a say. And I think Eli Manning... Likes his offensive coordinator. If you went six and ten with the roster that went twelve and four in two thousand eight, then that would be on Tom Coughlin. Right. Then that's on Tom Coughlin. And even that was, like you said, once Plaxico, the Plaxico situation happened. Yeah. But I think Eli's gonna have a say. And what are you gonna do? 
You're not giving up a draft pick, which you need desperately to bring in Sean Payton. You're not doing that. Mm-hmm. But and and he wasn't even there when Eli was. He left in 2002. Eli showed up in 2004. So it's not like Eli knows his system. So you're no, gonna, you, Kevin Kildrive was the offensive coordinator right. for the majority of his you're tenure. Gonna, you're going to bring in a new coach, whether you know, and if it's an offensive guy, it, it's a brand new system. It, it's it's audibles. It's the offensive line learning their calls again. It's 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 a new set of stuff for for Eli to learn and to get on the same page with his receiver. Do you really want to do that? And Eli is not getting any younger. Look, these are all the factors you have to put in there. You have to put them into the food processor, grind them up, and something's got to come out that smells good. Mm-hmm. And if you bring in a new guy with a whole new system, I'm not saying Eli Manning can't learn a new system, but do you really want to retard your progress that you made? Even though you were 6-10, and 10, the offense, I think, made leaps and bounds. Leaps and bounds. Speaking, speaking of retarding progress, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were 2-14 and 14 last year. They get the number one pick. They get Jameis Winston. They go 6-10. Six and 10. They were 6-6 six and six in December and had a chance at a wild card before they folded a little bit down the stretch. Lovey Smith and Leslie Frazier are both unemployed. That's, that's got to do. See, I if s- I'm an Eagles fan, uh, yeah. I'm sending off my next email when I'm done with the show to Howie Roseman. Here you go. Lovey and Leslie. Because you know what? The defense was a disaster. And the only reason the defense wasn't the worst defense in the NFL is because the Giants were. I don't know why that happened. That has, to do, that has to do with philosophy. They need to fix the defense badly. And I'll tell you what. Lovey Smith and Leslie Frazier. Leslie Frazier is a pretty good, pretty good coordinator. Because and Rooney Rule candidate from you, back in the day. You've got to give a coach at least three years. You have to. He's been there for two. Yeah. So At least three. So my thought is, if something, I'm an Eagles fan, you bring, in, doesn't smell right you bring in Lovey. He's a defensive-minded coach. Uh-huh. You bring in Leslie, let him run, because Billy Davis can go with Chip. Leave Pat Shermer alone. The offense wasn't necessarily the problem. They scored a lot of points when they were coming right. They need an offensive line. Evan Mathis, Todd Harriman's two guys the Eagles jettisoned, more late third- to seventh-round draft picks that did pretty well for them. Let me, let, me, let me ask you a really quick question, I'll let you wrap up, and then we'll get out of here because we're at the 90-minute mark. Mm-hmm. Are you upset as an Eagle fan that Reed is back in the playoffs? And second part to the question, will you have a jolly old laugh if they get knocked out in the first game? <laughs> Am I upset Andy Reed's in the playoffs? No. Kansas City's a more talented team than people give them credit for. They started 1-5 and five and then won 10 games in a row. So clearly either something wasn't right at the beginning or they fixed what they needed to fix. And that ended up being a pretty tough dis- division with Denver, and mm-hmm. Oakland was a tough Absolutely. out. San Diego stunk, but D- yeah. Oakland was a tough out they as had usual. had three teams, yeah. And they had a tough schedule. They played a lot of teams at games that could have gone either way. Will I have a jelly old laugh if he gets knocked out in the first round? Yes, only if it's a clock management issue that causes <laughs> it. And will you be screaming at the TV, take that Lorax? Just, no. just one. No, I don't want J.J. Watt to kill Alex Smith <laughs> or anything, you know, or Jadavian Clowney. But if a, a clock management issue knocks the Chiefs out, yet yeah, then yes. Because, look, they lost an all-world player in Jamal Charles. Is, and is Hoyer going to start at quarterback? Yeah, he's, he's cleared. He started week 17. I know he started week 17, but... He's going to start Brandon Whedon? I don't know. Um, 
think it's funny. L- listen, I don't even think Andy Reid could name the Chiefs' number two receiver behind Jeremy <laughs> Macklin, and they were down to their third and fourth string running backs at the end yeah. of the year, and they won ten games. Jamal in a row. Charles was a big I, hit, and they won ten games, in and a row. they I mean, still won ten games in a row. Yeah. So I'm not upset that he's back in the playoffs because you know what? I have nothing bad to say about Andy Reid other than the the whole Lorax era. But like again, Andy Reid is a legend in Philadelphia. He was there for. 14 years, and him and McNabb, I mean, that's the, the Coughlin-Eli era, the Golden era, the, the Walsh-Montana, like, not as successful as Walsh yeah. and Montana, but... Who is? You know, huh. that's, that's, the, that's the Johnson-Aikman, you know, in Eagles lore, that's that era. Can't hate on him for it. Can't hate on him for how it ended, but... I think I'll end on the, the line Jim Norton had with me when I was, when I called into the show, because I thought it was brilliant and funny and laughed Mary Randolph, but I told him, you know, I, I, I try to get some of his characters into my highlights, and that's why, basically, they brought me on the mm-hmm. show. So it was after the third time that I was uh, my audio clip was on the show, they, they had me call in, and as I was saying goodbye, I basically told Jim it was out of love and respect, and I said, you know, I had really two favorite comics when I was growing up, and I forgot one. I should have said Rickles, too. And he reminds me a lot of Don Rickles, which is why I love Jimmy mm-hmm. so He's just raunchier than Rickles. But I'm sure Rickles was raunchy in the clubs back in the day just as much as Jimmy is. But I said, you know, there were two guys, George Carlin, who I never missed the special, and he was the master. And I've talked about him on yep. this uh, ad nauseum. And I said, you know, you're, you're from a couple towns over from me growing up, and I always followed your career, and I, I just latched on, and I love, I love what you do. And he said, I love how you phrased that. One was a genius, and the other had the right zip code. <laughs> <laughs> so you're my second favorite podcast co oh, ever, God. Chris. Everyone else I've ever worked with is tied for number one. There That's you how go. you go with it. Yeah, exactly. So I just, it was a thrill to be on the show. They want me in studio to talk uh, sports, and I would be thrilled to do that hopefully we could do that uh in the next month or two but i just wanted to give them a quick shout out and thank them again for having me on eric stangle justin stangle opie jimmy uh it was appreciated uh thank you very much for that and uh i hope everyone enjoyed this one jack did a tremendous job as As always. always it's just so easy and then we did our own magic hour yes big time jack for a half hour and then lou and chris's magic hour big show Yeah, really big show. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you join us again next week for another edition of the Chris Sheeran Show here on YesNetwork.com and iTunes Podcasts.